Welcome to the Self-Made Expert Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Morgan, and I love speaking with people who are cultivating economically valuable expertise outside the world of academia and the licensed professions. Some of these conversations end up on this podcast. You can learn more about my work helping indie consultants build an expertise moat at philipmorganconsulting.com. Jonathan Stark, welcome to The Self-Made Expert. So glad to have a chance to talk to you again. It's been a long time. Welcome back, yes. Folks who maybe are binging these episodes are like, wait, you talked to Jonathan two hours ago. No, no, it's been <laughs> like two to three years since that first interview was recorded. Um, you're back. I don't know. I feel like I should say what's changed for you in those maybe in the last two to three years? Business-wise, I would say that really, really feeling the 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 wind under the wings. You know, the plan is working. the sh- The ship is lifting off, has lifted off for sure. Like it's been, you know, when we first met, I think it was 2015 or so, and I was about to initiate a big business pivot, mm-hmm. and it took like 18 months, 24 months to feel like that was done uh, uh-huh. without, you know, without having to sell my house or something, you know, like maintaining a, a level of income and, and, but, but building a new business at the same time as running an old one. And that phase ended and then it was like, okay, wow, I did it. And then kind of didn't look too far beyond that point leading up to it. It was kind of a milestone moment, but it's been a few years since then. And now, uh, you know, slowly but surely, I've been able to been able to orient my activities around the mission that the business was created to fulfill and think way less about maybe I should try this and tactics and experimenting and you know what's going to have the most bang for the buck and all of the uh, there's a lot less experimentation and a little bit more like okay just you know drop plow and do work so so for me it's what does that mean? That's all very high level. What does that mean? That means that I can write and do podcasts pretty much full time. Yeah. And which I absolutely love. So, you know, so I'm, and I'm making, you know, I'm still experimenting with things and ramping down different uh, sort of high touch one-on-one services because they don't really align with the mission to rid the world of hourly billing. You know, I can't mm-hmm. do it one person at a time. I need to do group stuff and bigger stuff and things that scale. So, uh, that's the biggest change, like where that's, it's like, oh my God, the strategy's working. <laughs> that's interesting. Let me pick at a few details. So you had um, at least one legacy client who, is it fair to say, helped fund the transition? When I say legacy, like mobile consulting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's over. Can you talk a little bit about that, more about that part of the transition? Sure. So my old old business air quotes old business there was one or two before that but my most recent old business was mobile strategy consulting i started it in 2000 roughly in 2007 2008 when the iphone was first announced i fell in love with it instantly i was a web developer at the time and i just wanted to work on iphone and then later android Mm -hmm. Uh, so i went really deep on that wrote a book a couple of books one of them was very successful and that that got me into a sort of nosebleed territory altitude of consulting with, you know, big fortune 50 companies. Right. 
So that lasted for um, several years uh, for a variety of reasons. It, it plateaued and it felt like it might be in decline even. Uh, but I did have a bunch of retainer clients because my main income was from advisory retainers, which were these month-to-month advisory engagements, consulting engagements. And so basically what I did was in, in 2016, I published a book called Hourly Billing is Nuts. And that was my line in the sand, like where I went really public with a product for my new business, which was going to be business coaching for software developers mm-hmm. on how to stop trading time for money. And once I sort of fired that shot, then there was kind of no turning back in my mind. Uh, but I didn't, you know, but I, I was starting from zero, completely from zero. Right. I had no, I had essentially no list. I had blogged a little bit, which ended up being what the book was. So I had essentially no content other than the book. Mm-hmm. And just really starting from scratch. So, uh, you know, and I had like a, a solid six figures business leading up to that in a lifestyle that matched it. Yeah. And, and at that point, two kids, which right. I didn't have when I started mobile consulting. So I very consciously, I guess, I guess to just to, to make a long story short, I stopped taking on new clients in that realm. And I just let the existing ones, I just continue to support them and, and all things come to an end. So they just atrophied that that business just atrophied away. Hmm. And I used and as, you know, as I would, I think I had two retainer clients after the book that were both fairly long-term. And I got a couple of, you know, I was getting speaking gigs still, like paid speaking gigs. So still flying around a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I just, but I just stopped doing any lead gen. I stopped responding to people that were looking for quotes or proposals or, you know, I, I didn't not respond. You know what I mean? I just didn't. Yeah. Didn't pursue no, it. No new business activity. Yeah. All new business activity was on the other side of the fence, you know, creating a product ladder, coming up with different ways to deliver these, you know, these two or three or four new services I had created. And, um, you know, I went, I went top down from the product ladder, the most expensive helicopter option first, because you can make a small number of sales for a high amount of money. Mm-hmm. It was most similar to my previous business experience, my previous day to day, where I was just kind of advisory, but instead of consulting, I was coaching and you know did that first and then built products and services down from there and as i built down into lower tiered services i think the cheapest ones like 29 dollars. then and i broadened the base the size of the audience now instead of having you know like one client paying me ten thousand dollars a month now i have or, or more now i've got you know hundreds or you know, hundreds of people paying me ten dollars a month let's say so it's it's yeah. like the same amount of money it's a, it's a little bit more money. Well, it's, it's actually significantly more money, but, mm-hmm. um, but uh, like hundreds of times more customers or clients or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. 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 If we visualize a triangle, you moved from a sort of a tall, skinny triangle to a, a fatter at the base, yes. wider yes. triangle of revenue distribution. Correct. And now I'm chopping off the point. So it'll turn more and more, um, I don't know, trapezoidal. Yeah. (laughs) If we want to use the metaphor. Yeah. I I know you love your work. Uh, How much time could you step away from it for without anyone noticing? Oh, months. Okay. 
So let's, I mean, I couldn't. Oh, I would have to ahead. set a couple. Of, I'd set up a little, you know a little, tiny bit of automation, but everything's. Sure. In, I, I planned for that eventuality, uh-huh. so I know exactly what I would have to do. It would probably take me a weekend. Yeah, you know, maybe two days to set up a couple of automations, and it would just run by itself. Well, do you do cheap experiments, or do you do more sort yes. of all? In? Okay, let's talk about the two things. How do you make them cheap? and mm-hmm. low commitment and and which ones failed and for you anyway and you would say I, uh, not that again that didn't mm-hmm. work right how, how do you make them cheap well at this point i have got the luxury of a lot of attention uh-huh. from people who are exactly the kind of people i want to serve so i can just ask them okay um, I, I typically don't come out and ask them and say hey what would you think if i did this right um but i'll you know i'll tweet something like i'll tweet something provocative let's say which is maybe i'm maybe i'm imagining an idea for a new you know five-day challenge i I recently did this Uh, Mm -hmm. i was actually i was thinking how important but i don't want to go into the it's just it's not important i could go into the details if you want it's not important the point is i had an idea for like a a five-day challenge i do these they're fairly popular Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was a totally new idea different completely different subject and I tweeted some, you could kind of think of it like this, like I fast forwarded in my mind to what would the sales page for this thing look like? What would the headline on that page be? Or, or what would maybe a handful of headlines look like on that page? And, and there's, they would be, I, I like to use heck yeah headlines, I call them where, where the ideal person will read it and immediately scream in their head, heck yeah, uh-huh. like that, yes. Oh, could, could you give an example of that? Like one where uh, you've seen that sort of reaction? Oh, sure. Um, well, I mean, you could just, I, they're all over my website. Sure. I, I love them. Yeah. But it'd be something like, uh, you know, do you feel like you're working harder than ever, but you can't get ahead? Um, okay. You know, Perfect. Or, yeah, Thank you. Right. Yeah. It's a symptom of hourly billing. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a headline that's, I, I generally shy away from headlines like, you need to stop billing by the hour. It's like, do I? So instead... <laughs> Instead, I, I sort of like if you imagine a doctor patient in a diagnosis and the doctor's like, you know, says, you know, does it hurt when I touch here? And they uh-huh. scream like that's that's the approach for the headline. OK, a little um, a probative rather than di- than just saying, here's the diagnosis. You're sort of probing around for pain. I know I'm going to hit a hot button if the right people are coming to my site. If the if the right people, if the, the ideal buyer for the thing that they're on the page for. Uh-huh they're going to scream in pain when they read that headline. Okay. <laughs> you know? So the reaction, actually, people have often told me the reaction is laughter because, because they are like, oh my God, that's like hilarious. And then they keep reading the page and they feel like I'm reading their mind and it makes them laugh because I've talked to so many people that have this exact pain. So to get, so I might think like, all right, I've got this idea for a five day challenge. What are some of the pains that I would want to agitate with that heck yeah headline? And they tend to be a question, usually in a question format. And so I'll just go on Twitter and I've got like 11 or 12,000 followers on Twitter and I'll just tweet the headline kind of. Yeah. And if I get a lot of response, I'm probably onto something. Okay. And if not, then it starts to get a lot less interesting. Got it. Okay. So that's one way to make the experiment cheap is just mm-hmm. a sort of um, seeing how a crowd of people respond. Right. Because those are the people I have access to. So those are the people who I'm going to you know, be selling it to. So there might be other people who don't follow me, but I don't have easy access to them. So, you know, of the, of the people who I have e- easy access to and are in the, the kinds of people I want to serve, which are generally independent professionals who traditionally bill by the hour, 
I'm going to say, hey, you know, what about a five day ad detox challenge? And people is like crickets, like what? You know, or like, yeah. uh, I didn't put it like that, but it was like, you know, do you feel like you're totally unfocused and you can't get anything done? If, by the end of the day, you've got nothing done. And people were like, it just wasn't, it didn't, res didn't seem to resonate. I didn't try that hard, but that's just an example that it's recent. So it comes to mind. Yeah. And, and of course I, if it feels like it might be something, or if I feel like it was just, you know, people just weren't on Twitter, my people just weren't on Twitter at the time. And I've tried it a few times. And I'm getting nothing. Maybe I'll try it. it uh, you know, some kind of thing like that on my mailing list, maybe announce a wait list for something that I know I'm going to try. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do lot, lots of little experiments. It's probably from my software development days. I don't want to go all in on one thing yeah, too quickly. That, that's how the expertise incubator started. I was thinking, you know, what do, you know, what do experts and thought leaders do? Oh, these, you know, three or five things, you know, they publish a lot. They, maybe they do research or can speak from a data perspective, a couple other things. And I just emailed mm -hmm. my list one day and said, what if <laughs> I got together a group of people who did these things and we approached them as challenges and there was... There was a response, and and now mm. there's a thing I do regularly. Anyway, what right. what about failed yeah. experiments? What? And I'm worried people are going to hear this and say, "Oh, well, Jonathan's a pretty smart guy. That didn't work for him. That won't won't work for me." And so, give any disclaimers you need to. But what sure. are the failed experiments you've learned from? Well, so since I test in this sort of quick and cheap way, um, there's probably dozens of them that I can't even think of because they were just like a dumb idea. Right. <laughs> they were that disposable. Um, <laughs> right. They're that disposable. But I, you know, like um, the, the, the things that I've actually put some real time and effort into creating and have since killed are all about me being like, oh, you know what? I just don't want to spend my time in this way. Huh. So one of them is road mapping. Road mapping is something that I work with my coaching students often on. It's a, uh, it's a good discrete you know, if they're used to doing big projects and just, you know, billing by the hour and just like, okay, let's start, go turn mm -hmm. on the meter and start doing your thing. Um, road mapping is often an easy chunk or an obvious chunk to break off from the beginning of a project that you would do perhaps before you even quote like a big software build or something like that, where the client knows that they don't know what they don't know. Right. And they can't even ask you or they can't even answer your very good questions about why do this, you know, all the questions that you would ask before a big project. So then you could propose a roadmap and say, well, let's actually do some diagnosis here. We'll come up with I'll interview the stakeholders. I'll interview uh, your top three clients. We'll make sure we have some kind of, a, you know, make sure that there is a positive business outcome that we can build toward before we just start building something and just kind of like hope. You know, we will build it and hope people will come like, nah, no. Mm -hmm. So I did road mapping. It was an obvious choice for me for those reasons, because it's an, it was an obvious choice for me when I was a software developer and it worked, but I found that, you know, to interview someone for, you know, sometimes up to two hours, which is fine. Uh, I don't mind that at all. But then I would, it would take me about a week to draw up a report with kind of like a, you know, a roadmap, like here, mm -hmm. here, if I were you in your situation, knowing where you are and where you want to go, here are the things that I would do. And, uh, it was torture writing those. I don't, <laughs> I can't explain why I love writing, but yeah. for some reason I, I, I think, and I think it, 
it just occurred to me, I think I know the reason why, because I was putting that much work into something that only one person was going to be able to read. And it was like, this is this, I would, I would write this all day long for my list or as a blog post or, or as a book, but for one part, an audience of one. And so I, I, I dreaded it. I would procrastinate for six days and write the thing on the seventh day. I, I knew I hated it. Yeah. And, uh, and then the last one I did, I couldn't even make myself do it. And I gave the guy's money back. <laughs> right. So if that's not a clear sign, yeah. um, I don't know what is, but at that point I had done maybe a dozen or two. Uh-huh. And I was like, interesting. There's really only two. And it got bigger and bigger. It was turning into like, it was a lot of boilerplate. At first it wasn't. But then as I did more and more, I was like, oh, you know, Alice needs the same thing Bob needed. So I just, I had created this boilerplate. So by the time, by the end, I was giving people these hundred page documents. I'm like, this is a book. So then I just turned it into a book and now I sell it for 49 bucks. That, that has been for me, the exact same feedback mechanism that's told me you're headed towards some partial death of your soul, Philip, if you keep doing this. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the mechanism, to be clear, is increasing amounts of procrastination uh-huh. on something that by every other observable metric is sort of fine. But mm-hmm. I just start going, oh, no, uh, oh God, no. Uh, okay, so uh, has anything changed on Twitter in the last three minutes? Because I'm going to check again. <laughs> you know, like that yeah, stuff starts happening. Yeah. Well, maybe we should uh, camp out there for a minute. Like, I think there's two kinds of the resistance. There's like, oh, you're doing something scary and worthwhile. And then the other kind that I'm talking about, which is, oh, God, no, this is, can't be how I'm going to spend my life. Um, and in this case, it was you're right. doing it's client different. work. You're right. Yeah, it's different than Pressfield's resistance. Right. It's right. straight up like, it's straight up like, this is not the best use of my time. Yeah. It's just, I can't, I cannot make myself, I, I did the same, I, this is, it's funny now that we're talking about it. I knew I had written my last software book when I canceled my last software book contract. Yeah. So, so like I, I had done several books in the software space, three or four of them for O'Reilly. I had a new contract with O'Reilly. I could not, I'm telling you, I, I'd written probably five or six professionally published books by that time. I mm-hmm. could not make myself write this book. And I said, you guys, I can't, I can't do it. I have to give you your money back or break the contract or, you know, you mm-hmm. can put it towards speaking fees or whatever you want to do. <laughs> I'm not writing this. I can't make myself do it. So let me, let me ask you this, Jonathan. Let me uh, pretend to be someone who I'm not that different from. And that someone says, and this is an internal dialogue inside my head. Okay. So that someone says, there are people in this world who, you know, like live on, I don't know, $2 a day or whatever. They're, they're basically sure. starving. Mm-hmm. How can you be so something? I'm not sure what word goes in there. To, spoiled? Yeah. How <laughs> could you be so spoiled to scoff at making decent money, doing a thing that, and, and now, and you, you seem so, whatever, privileged or whatever. Like how, how could you turn that mm-hmm. down in favor of something uncertain that may not pay off immediately? Or do you kind of, do you get the the voice that oh, I'm yeah. trying to like? Do you I, you probably right, don't like? Have I'm throwing that. away something that someone would kill for. There you go. Well said. Yeah. How yeah. how do you deal with that, or how do you advise people deal with that? It's probably mostly an internal monologue. Most people are not going to hear that from the outside. They're going to hear it from the inside. Mm-hmm. Well, you got to you got to realize. I lived in a van. 
like I've been all the way down. So <laughs> not I was down, a musician not down for by the a river. long time. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly down by the river, literally in the IHOP <laughs> okay. parking lot for real. So over time, I stacked the bricks. I put in work. I, I, you know, I switched careers multiple times. It wasn't a straight path. Mm-hmm. I have a music degree for God's sake. It's worthless. You I, know, I love the story you tell about sometimes your shampoo was, uh, which you stored frozen. in the van where you slept yeah. was sometimes mm-hmm. frozen when you went to the YMCA to take a, take a shower. I had to use it, you know, you're from, obviously you're in a, you're in a cold area, an ice scraper on your windshield in, yeah. the, in the morning, you yeah, have to yeah. scrape off the ice. The ice was on the inside of my windshield. <laughs> from all the humidity. Would, the condensation, <laughs> the condensation from breathing all night. I had electric socks. It was, it was, I was in Boston, the coldest winter on record at the time. And I needed, I needed a van yeah. and I couldn't afford a van and rent Yeah, because we needed to, you know, lug our gear to, to shows. So I said, all right, you guys, I'm going to go buy a van. I'm going to live in it. You guys get a new roommate. And after a few months, I'll, you know, my warehouse job will, you know, whatever I'll, you know, I'll be able to do something. Yeah. And like all true struggling musicians, I ended up dating someone that let me move in with her, (laughs) you know? So it's not like, it's not, am I privileged? Yes. You know, white guy in the U S to born to parents who both hung around. I mean, I have everything going for me. So I totally get it if, you know, I'm totally born on third base, but I wasn't rich yeah, by any stretch of the imagination. So where do I get off throwing away things that other people would kill for? And it's like, over time, I built up a base of uh, enough of, I don't want to say security, but it is kind of like that. It's a platform from which I felt like I could make staged bets. Uh So the thing, the thing, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't, I wouldn't make, I wouldn't start a startup. That's, I'm not, that's, I don't have the risk tolerance for like a startup, but I do have the risk tolerance for like writing a self-published book about something I care about. It's not that risky, you know? And, and it's not like the money from the, from the book contract was like, okay, if you make $2 a day, yes, it would be good money. But, you know, it's not going to buy you a house. Mm Mm-hmm you know, it's, it's not millions of dollars, you know, it's like a software book. They're going to sell 50,000 copies if it's a huge hit. Yeah. So anyway, but I, I totally take your point. Um, honestly, it's like, look, you got to take risks if you want to get rewards, um, say, spend less than you make. Mm-hmm. And I, I also like to add in, share everything you learn along the way, you know? So like, cause maybe to your point earlier, that's what gets me excited. I just love sharing stuff I learned along the way. And if that creates value for people, then maybe there's a way I can capture some of that so I can keep doing more of it. Uh, but you know, I didn't, uh, my point is I didn't start by throwing away book deals, but my first book deal I would have done for free. Yeah. It's, it's just, um, so interesting to me how we navigate and, and create at the same time, increasing amounts of opportunity for ourselves. So you listened to our last interview. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you said, oh, I've got some great sort of uh, starting points for a follow-up conversation. And I want to mm-hmm. read one of the ones you said. It, it connects with what you were saying about road mapping. When you were creating roadmaps for clients, and it was this experience of creating value for one person at a time. So yeah. 
here's, here's your question, which is a nice open-ended question for us to talk about. You said, what exactly do we, do we mean when we say I'm an introvert? I use it, I being Jonathan, I use it to mean I prefer solitude, but I wonder if some people use it to mean I don't like sharing my thoughts. And then, you know, a few moments ago, you were talking about this feeling of, wow, I, I poured myself into creating something valuable for one person, but what if I did that for many people? And that mm. seems related. You have a previous career as a performing musician where right. you perform for many people. Maybe, maybe there's something about you or me perhaps, like I, I identify as a hardcore introvert for mm. sure. So I know what, you know, gives me energy and what taxes me, but also I don't mind writing for thousands of people. And, mm -hmm. but when I'm doing that, I'm often thinking of one person. Anyway, there's a lot going on here. Why don't yeah. you start? <laughs> so yeah, in preparation for this, I actually looked up the word introvert to see what the dictionary definition was. And fascinatingly, uh, the one that I came across was uh, the definition of introvert was a shy, reticent person. Huh. And I had to look up both of those words too. And they are the perfect split of those two things. So shy is someone who is kind of like nervous or timid in the company of other people. So sort of you could call it socially awkward or whatever, or like sure. you were saying, you get drained by not energized by being around large groups of people. Yeah, um, I'm the same way. I, I prefer to be it, with the with the rare exceptions, a very, very small circle of people energize me when I hang around with them. Very small, fewer right. than 10. Yeah. And, and even when I'm with those people in a huge crowd, like if we go to a concert back before there was a plague, yeah. then I, I would be like, I would be so done. But I would enjoy myself. I'm, mm -hmm. It's fine. I mean, I speak on stage for crying out loud. Like, it's fine. I, I don't mind it. And get off stage and like people mob you. And mm -hmm. um, But after that's over, I need to like lock myself in my hotel room for the rest of the night. Okay. Like I can take about two hours of like a line of people coming up to me tops. Right. And you see other people that'll just like, you know, like ball players that'll stand outside after game and, and sign autographs until people are gone and, and they love the whole time. You know, it's just mm -hmm. different personality type. Yeah. So to me, that's the, that's the shy category. Right. I don't consider myself shy, but that I would put it in that category where it's like, you know, this is work. It's work for me to be in a big group of people. I, ironically, I despise being the center of attention. Uh -huh. I used to like it when I was, when I was younger, I used to like it in retrospect. I liked it. And now I don't mind doing it because I know I have to do that for the bigger picture. You, yeah. you and I are not that far apart. Uh, I always sort of, I, and I bet this is a common thing. People are like, wait, you're an introvert. You seem so uh, you know, talkative or, you know, you're always in my inbox and whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you and so I are that not gets that far to, apart. Anyway, go ahead. Right. Yeah. So that gets to the reticent part. The reticent isn't about being timid around other people. It's about not wanting to reveal one's thoughts or feelings. Huh. So uh, when I wrote that question to you in the email, I was like, I think some people mean it to mean reticent and some people mean it to mean shy or use the term introvert for one oh, or the other. It turns out okay. the word introvert contains both of them in it. So I'm like, okay, it makes sense that people would. But, so then if I were talking to someone that I was coaching and they described themselves as an introvert, I would drill into this, these two pieces of it. Are you shy or are you afraid or uncomfortable sharing your ideas? If you're shy, that's fine because they're you can have a mailing list and you'll never be around people like that could mm -hmm. be your outlet. 
Yeah. But if you are not comfortable sharing your ideas, that's death in an expertise or an authority-based business. Like you ha you can't not share your ideas. That's the whole point. So this is a good place for me to ask, and I've never asked you this before. What is the worst thing that an email list has, member has ever said to you about your thinking? What's the worst, harshest critique you've gotten? You don't have to, you probably won't remember I, I, verbatim. No, I, I know exactly. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't on the mailing list. It was someone who's on my mailing list now. I don't know if she was on my mailing list at the time, mm -hmm. but it was a comment on a YouTube video. Okay. Which is essentially, you know, it's just content I put out and, and it was on a subject that I'm kind of uncomfortable talking about in public because it's too easily misinterpreted. Okay. Which we can go into. And then, and, and so I, I but I posted it because I think it is a use, it's useful to help people stop being so reticent. Okay. We can talk about what the idea is, but so I, I put the idea out there full well knowing that people, it's easy to misinterpret. And her whole entire comment was shady as F. Uh -huh. And I was like, God damn it. You know, because it was a perfectly reasonable reaction, mm -hmm. even though it's not, in my opinion, it's not. But have, had I had the opportunity to, had I gone into more detail in the actual content, then I probably would have avoided, you know, because she's, she's the one that said it, but who knows however, however many other people thought it. Uh -huh. So uh, it, the, and the, I think to get to your point, when do I regret something I said in public? And that, you usually, know what? Uh, can I stop you there? I'm so sorry. I, yeah, I want to sure, hear that. Sure. But my, my point was, I want to, I want to know, I want folks listening to know how bad it could get or, or like, what's the worst you've seen? Oh God, it almost, almost never. I mean, I've been, I've been writing email every single day since 2016. So it's like 2000 emails, right? I've probably gotten three maybe three emails that, but, but they're always like, I got a couple during the black lives matter when that was really, really hot mm -hmm. that were like, you know, I'm really disappointed in you. You haven't said anything about this. And I'm like, this is a bit, you know, I was like, okay, you know, whatever. But I took the feedback. I took the feedback and I mm -hmm. did make a statement that was uncomfortable, but mm -hmm. that's not really what you're going for. But so, so I'm like leaving out those and maybe got three or four of those and they're actually very respectful. Right. Like I trust you. I know you're a nice guy, uh, but so I'm trying to think of one. Well, I guess I, I guess I can't think of one. I'm sure I remember getting them, but I can't remember like what the ding would have been. You know what I mean? Right. I, I think maybe that's what you're getting at. Like I share ideas all the time, and people do they just? I don't know. Oh, here's the, here's the one that I get. I don't think this is what you meant, but every once in a while I'll get someone new on the list that just like yells at me because it's too many emails, uh -huh. you know? And I'm like, it's a daily list. What would you expect? So that yeah. doesn't bother me because they just don't read. Sure. So yeah. I, yeah. It's just, there's just no, people don't, I mean, maybe a different kind of list. If you're a more inflammatory kind of subject, of course, you're going to get, you know, a different kind of reaction. You're going to have a much more polarized reaction. But mine's just about how to create more leverage in your business by, you know, ditching hourly billing. So it's, it's just not that controversial. So, yeah, I don't know. I, there's just no, you know, now, we'll, now we'll get a dozen, but <laughs> <laughs> there's just no, there's no blowback. So what's, um, let's, you know, in your most empathetic mode, what is going on with someone who doesn't want to share their thinking, resists it? Or it's just like never even thinks to do it. Uh, I mean, the quote I always go to, 
you know, Van Halen was one of my favorite bands. And I remember David Lee Roth saying, you know, stick your head above the crowd and eventually someone's going to throw a beer bottle at it. Right. So yeah, people are going to, I mean, I get pushback, but it's always very respectful. People are like, oh, you know, I, I read all, you know, I read all your messages. I agree. I got to, I got to push back on this one because of X, Y, Z. And sometimes they make a great point that something I didn't think of or some assumption that I made that isn't true for them. Mm-hmm. So you do want to be open to feedback and that sort of thing. And and you, 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 you know, I want my ideas to stand up to scrutiny because if they don't, then it's, then I'm doing a bad job with my mission. Right. So it's, if I don't put them out there so that they can kind of, I almost want to say cure, you know, like if you don't expose them to other people, you don't know whether or not they, well, I mean, I was going to say whether or not they work, but they won't work if they're just in your head either. So like it's the whole, every, every email I send is an experiment kind of like I'm trying to come up with some new way to get the same old message across. Yeah. And, and, and it's wild how, I can write about the exact same thing every day, but just in the context of whatever happened to me that day. And people who, you know, it's like, oh, I've been on your list for two years. The first time I've replied, this one really hit me. I needed it right now. Yeah. So it could just be a timing thing. Um, but, but why don't people, okay. So th- I think there's a couple of reasons why people are either don't think to or are reluctant to share their ideas. First of all, it could seem like a lot of work and people will say like, well, what's the benefit? You know, especially if they're used to billing by the hour, the first thing they want to know is, well, how many hours a week do you do that? Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, where's the payoff? How long does it take? You know, I don't know, three years, three years. That's like, do the math, 6,000 hours or whatever. Right, right. I'm like, it's not like that, you know? Um, so that one thing is like, where's the, what's in it for me is kind of the first attitude. The next one is fear. You know, they're just like, what if someone yells at me? Or what if I make myself look stupid? Mm-hmm. I, I challenge someone, somebody, I'm trying, I'll see if I can think of the exact quote. You know, someone was saying something about maybe starting a mailing list. I'm totally paraphrasing this from a hazy memory, but sure. But I do remember the punchline. So the person was like, oh, you know, I'm a, a kind of this, I'm afraid to do that. And I said, well, why? And the person replied something like, oh, because he put it in a really harsh way, but it basically was like, I'm afraid I would be judged. And I was like, and, and it wasn't controversial. I was like, by who? And this is going back and forth on email. And so like some time passes and he emails back and he goes, actually myself. So he, he had it in his mind, his excuse for not doing it or his procrastination for not doing it was that he feared being judged. And I'm like, who's going to judge you for, for this, this yeah, idea? Right. And he was like, nobody. And then he was forced to admit that it was himself. That's uh, a, so there can be a beautiful yeah. moment for that person to... Uh, yeah to realize where 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 the enemy is yeah right it's like do you want to stick your head above the crowd what if somebody does throw a bottle at it you'll live so let me share something i don't think you know so um when folks opt into my email list uh the email list software just bounces them to a survey the survey is totally optional Mm -hmm. but i have found that's a moment when uh maybe i have more of that person's attention for that moment and so I can ask some questions, you know, what, what, what brought you here? What are you trying to do kind of questions? Mm-hmm. But one of the questions specifically that I ask is, what is your vision for impact? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly how it's phrased. And it's a big open-ended text field. And Jonathan, it's so fascinating to see what people say. And 
I am worried folks would misinterpret what I'm about to say as coming with a tone of arrogance or something. But it's astonishing to me how many people don't have anything to, to write in there that is much beyond, I, I want to um, help my clients and I want to do, and I sort of want to, you know, make them mildly more effective. Yeah. And again, I, I just, I would hate for someone to hear this and think, oh, that Philip guy is so arrogant. Um, Cause that's not where I'm coming from. But my, my conclusion after seeing uh, hundreds of these survey responses is mm-hmm. most people don't have something they could ar- articulate that is like what you've touched on several points today, um, a, a sort of a mission, a, a mm-hmm. feeling of, I, I want to make the world a better place in this specific way, right. and I want to do so beyond the scale of the client I'm helping now. Mm-hmm. I want to help a group of people in this specific way. And mm-hmm. I wonder if that is connected to this reticence to stick one's head above the crowd. You know what? That triggers a, a connected thought, which I, which I think the answer to your question is yes, because I have found that people who are very shy and people who are uncomfortable in the spotlight are perfectly happy to get up on stage and completely light up when they're talking about their mission uh-huh. It's like I said before, I don't, I don't, I don't mind being in the spotlight, but it doesn't do any, I don't, it does nothing for me. It does nothing for my ego. I don't care about it at all. It makes me, it makes me definitely makes me more uncomfortable than anything, but it's not super uncomfortable. Yeah. But I do it because it's an opportunity to sort of convey an emotion in a particular way and create action in the audience. It's like, it needs to be done and I'm the guy to do it. So if if you, if you're on a mission and you you picked up that gauntlet or that mantle because no one else was doing it. That's a great way to get around stage fright because you're like you're forced to be courageous or give up the mission. And cur- and I love the word courage. It's not bravery. Hmm. Bravery is lack of fear. Courage is feeling fear but acting anyway. Right. And if you're on a mission, it makes it a lot easier to have courage because it's bigger than you. It's not you saying, "Look at me, I'm so cool." or I'm so smart. It's about a bigger thing. It makes, and it's, it makes everything so much. It's, it's weird because you'd think, well, that's giant. How will you ever, you'll never, you'll never be able to do that. Maybe even in, maybe it'll never happen, but you almost surely won't be able to do it in your lifetime. And I'm like, that's, that's fine with me. If I start a movement, it'll eventually take care of itself. So you'd think it would be more work to start a movement. And that sounds kind of arrogant too, but to do that, it makes a lot of other things a lot easier, you know, especially if you're uncomfortable talking about yourself, if you feel like that would be egotistical or something. Yeah. I almost never talk about myself except for like a funny story from the day or something self-deprecating. Yeah. It's almost always, it's about the mission. And I think I've, I've seen more than once, not constantly, but I've seen more than once people who are not natural entrepreneurs or natural business people. Uh, who are introverted and, you know, they always say the same thing, like, who am I to say, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I just want to, you know, I just want to do better work for better clients and be paid well for it. Just like you said, I get the same thing. It's like 90% of the replies are like, I just want to do better work for better clients and get paid better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, that's a great place to start. It's a great place to start because you're, you're worried, at least your clients are in there. Some people are just like, I want to have a million dollars. I want to be rich. I'm like, we cannot work together. Right. I, I don't, that gives me no starting point. 
But as long as someone expresses an interest in creating value or making making the lives better of someone else, that's a great starting point. And I think it'll make your life even easier and give you a bigger impact if you think even bigger. Like not just this client or the three clients you'll have this year or the 12 clients you'll have this year. What about 1,200 customers? Or what about 12,000 people, I don't know, um, that go through your course or, or whatever? Whatever the thing is, it's like if you can think bigger and bigger and bigger, somehow it's, um, well, I mean, the word is movement, right? Like it somehow gives you this momentum and courage to come back the next day and join the fight again. In our pre-recording chat, you mentioned reading an Andy Duke book, and I'm not sure which one of hers this comes from, but uh, she'll point out in, actually, I think it's her latest book on decision-making, she'll point out that um, hindsight bias is so pernicious when we're evaluating the quality of our decisions. And I think there's a related sort of, once you have this clarity about how it is you would like to uh, change the world, and that, again, be careful with the language, folks. We're not talking about uh, some massive change that affects all humans, but still there's perhaps no better language for talking about what we're talking about here. you, you kind of have this hindsight bias of like, you, you feel like you've always had it, even if you haven't. Jonathan, have you seen folks intentionally cultivate some more clear or strong or motivating vision or mission or ha- whatever language we want to use for themselves? Mm-hmm. And then that mm-hmm. trickles down to, they don't, they, they're, they're the same introvert they were before, but they sure don't act like it. They're now more willing to share their thinking. It's hard. I want to say yes to that, mm-hmm. but it's hard to because I uh, I believe that that will happen. Uh-huh. But I think this is a it's a an identity shift that plays out over years, right? And and there's something some people have it, like they just have it yeah. at a very early age. Yeah, they've kind of always and, had it. Mm-hmm. And I I asked someone who's more of a life coach, sort of a successful life life coach kind of guy. And we, and he's, he talks about it a lot in his book. And, um, I think the name of the book is, uh, this book will make you dangerous. And his name's Trip Lanier. He's very much like a guy. He's like, he's very, well, we don't need to go into Trip Lanier. People can look him up. Okay. Um, but he's, he's, he, he was talking about dicking around. He's like, a, mm-hmm. he's, he works with people, very successful startup founders who are miserable, mm-hmm. rich and miserable. And he's like, and I said something about how do you know whether or not you can take on a client when you first meet them, whether or not you think you'll be effective. And he's like, if I sense that they're just dicking around, then I can't do anything for them. Yeah. You know? And I was like, I'm like, have you ever noticed, this gets back to your question. Have you noticed whether or not those people are they usually older? Like the ones who aren't dicking around. And he said, no, no. He's like, sometimes he's maybe, maybe he said, uh, it's more common for someone to be older. And he, but he said, he his exact quote was something like, I've met a lot of 45-year-old boys. Uh-huh. And he mostly works with men. So, um, mm-hmm. and, and he said, and I've met some, you know, some 20-year-olds that are way beyond their years yeah. with maturity. And I said, is there any pattern? And he said, it's mostly people that have been exposed to death. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, that clicked for me. I was like, because if somebody lost a parent really young, any, I know if I have a few people, you know, uh, I, I have people in my extended family, uh, you know, through marriage and stuff who have lost parents early. Um, mm. And and boy, boy, 
are they industrious? Oh, wow. You know, yeah. So, you know, I don't know if that's just, um, that's just, uh, you know, not hindsight bias. Or I don't know if I'm just like looking yeah. for a pattern where there isn't one. Right. But it does make sense to me because the reason why I, the reason why I think it takes, it can take time for this to play out is that, you know, I'm 52, right? I, I, I would have been, when I was in my 30s, uh-huh. maybe even early 40s, I would have been writing that exact same thing in your big text area. Yeah. So over time, just as I got older, you start thinking about legacy a little bit more. You have kids. You're not going to live forever. It starts to become obvious, um, yeah. more obvious every day. And it's and you start to get exp- you know start losing aunts and uncles. You know my grandparents were long gone, but you know start losing aunts and uncles that are younger than my parents. And it's uh, like okay, this is coming for everyone. Yeah. And start to think like okay, I have this sort of s- stability. So things like legacy and opportunity cost really become front of mind. But that takes that you know if someone if if thirty year old me was listening to this, it's going to take me twenty years before I get there. You know, so I, I, I cannot make myself say that you can't coach someone on this. Like, I, yeah. I'm sure you can. Uh, somebody might be close and just need to be tipped. But I think if you're not close, it's going to take a while. So 2016 was a sort of red letter year for you of this, this <laughs> crystallizing, everyone. this mission. You know, you've called it a yeah. mission. That's fine. Yes. This yes. Uh, vision for impact, whatever. How long, this is such a, like, I, I'm not going to actually believe your answer to this question, but I'm curious anyway, because <laughs> I wouldn't believe my answer to this question for what it's worth. How long would you have invested in doing less desirable stuff to pave the runway so that you could start to see traction with this, this vision, this mission? And maybe you didn't think it, about it in those terms that? at all. Maybe you want to reject the yeah, question. I don't, even, I don't even understand the question. Well, um. Let's, okay, it's 2016. You're mm-hmm. like, I want to do this new thing. I'm doing this other yeah. stuff that, you know, I could I could milk it for a little longer, right? The mobile consulting. Yes, I could have definitely, I could have milked it for a lot longer. Yeah. So that that's how you paved your runway. And mm-hmm. how long would you have kept doing that, waiting for traction with the new thing before you gave oh, when up would on I the give new up? thing? That, yeah, right. that's a more succinct way to say it. But okay. anyway. I knew it was going to be a long game. I knew, I knew what, you know, it was a hazy, but I had the rough bones of what it was going to be. Yeah. What, what the new business would look like. So, you know, like a, a business model, I, I knew that it would take components of, you know, I was basically doing the thought leadership thing uh, in the, in the mobile space. And I was just be doing mobile. I was going to be doing thought leadership stuff in the new space, the ditching hourly space. And I had evidence Going back to when I made my previous pivot, which is a whole, you know, before I started the mobile business, I was a FileMaker developer and I was well known there because mm-hmm. I wrote and spoke and, and I was just going to kind of do the same thing with the new business. The difference was that I was starting from zero with audience. Everybody on my list knew me as I was positioned in one way and I was going to completely abandon that and go to a brand new thing where previously I'd done these kind of half pivots, but I knew cause I had been writing about this stuff when I left in, I left and started my own consultancy in 2006. I left a firm that was very successful and I was like the VP managing a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And, and when I left people were like, are you crazy? That's a dream job. And I was like, <laughs> it, it is a dream job. 
but I want to stop billing by the hour because I had this like religious experience practically. Yeah. So I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to crash this company. There's a lot of mortgages on the line here. There was like 10 or 15 employees. Yeah. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had to go figure it out and I didn't want to drag everybody through that with me. It was time for a change anyway. I wanted to move. Also, a lot of things came together at the same time. So I went and did it. And when I did, I think a lot of people, I, I was, I had a lot of colleagues, lots of colleagues who I knew on a first name basis. And a lot of them were really watching with great interest from the peanut gallery. Mm -hmm. Is this going to work? This, you know, he's, he's talking big about this, but there's no way this is going to work. He's going to get killed on scope creep, all the, all of the normal yeah. objections to not billing by the hour. And then when I, at the end of my first year, I had like doubled my income and it just got better every year. And so people started asking me from that crowd, they started asking me like it was, it was, a, uh, I wasn't pushing it. People were like, how do you do that? How did that work? So I knew there was interest I, and I knew, and I had enough um, experience in a space that built by the hour that I knew there were millions of people. The market was totally big enough. Yeah. It's still like shooting fish in a barrel compared to like, we help businesses get smarter and, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, I was like, yeah, th this is going to work. I had no doubt that it was going to work. Okay. I just needed to, to carve out enough time from my existing business so that I could go in on it. Your question was, when would I have quit? What if I was wrong? You know, thinking in bets, I just said I knew it was going to work, but you never really know. Sure. So how long would I have done it? I'm going to buy you a I minute to think about that. It's clear mm -hmm. that you at that time were not thinking, I'm going to give this five years, I'm going to give this three years or whatever. Mm -hmm. it, it seems like the leading indicator, you, you looked at that as clear-eyed as you could and said, well, this is clearly going to work. So maybe that's the answer to the question. Anyway, I bought you a minute. What? <laughs> how, let's, let's come at it like this. How many years would have to go by for me to be like, this is not going to work? Right. And the answer to that is probably five. Okay. But here's the thing. I'll get sick of it in 10 years. Like I get sick of stuff in 10-year phases. Uh -huh. Like I go through these roughly 10-year phases. So if I did it for five years and it was still like a side hustle or something... I probably would have started to 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 get less interested in it more quickly. It, it wouldn't have earned your loyalty <laughs> in the way that it has now. I would have miscal. I I think I think I was like, wow, I really miscalculated that. I've certainly done that plenty of times before. Like built a SaaS and like, oh, everyone's going to want this, and like literally no one wants it. Uh -huh. So you know, I'm familiar with taking feedback from the market and being like, look, if nobody, look, I know I'm right. I'll still, I would still have been like, I'm right. But nobody wants this, apparently. Like, I'm either saying it wrong, or I'm ahead of my time, or I'm too late, or whatever. Uh, the people are too risk-averse. Who knows what it is? It's not working. The mission is not looking like it's going to work. But I had but I had so many signals by that point. And, and I was switching into an ever... So here's the other thing that was in the email. Wait, wait, hold on. You. Can I stop you right there? I'm so sorry. Oh, please. But please. I, I must point out, you had those signals because... And, and it, this was easier for you because of, you know, everything, who you are and all the experiences you had. But you had those signals because you talked to people who thought you were a little nuts <laughs> about <laughs> this thing you were doing, this, these experiments with hourly billing. You were willing to mm -hmm. share. Those gave you signals that were leading indicators that you could invest more deeply. And mm -hmm. I just wanted to point, put that kind of point on that for, for folks listening 
I'm more familiar with your story than they are. But I just, I just really want to emphasize that. I'm so sorry for the interruption. Please go no, ahead. No, not at all. Yeah, well, it ties back to, to interrupt myself, I, it ties back to what we were talking about earlier, like testing with a tweet or testing with a, a headline to your email list yeah. or something like that. I know I could, pr- I could point to an event where I was like, that was when I was like, okay, this is definitely something. Yeah. Um, because I was getting like emails from colleagues, period. Not, not like every week, but you know, every once in a while, somebody would ask me like, well, how does it work? And, and I'd say, oh, go read this book or do this thing. I wasn't like teaching it. Yeah, and then and then a user group from that FileMaker space that I had I had been uh, had a reputation, uh, a user group in Boston, which is near where I live, was like, could you come up and speak to forty of us about this? Uh huh. And I went up. They asked all the right questions. They were really engaged. I did a presentation. They asked all the right questions. Um, they revealed to me that they had businesses that were different from mine and presented them with different challenges than I had, which was very interesting to me. Yeah, I was like, oh, right. Yeah, I, I purposely didn't hire employees because it would have complicated things. And you're sitting there with 40 employees. So how are you supposed to do it? Beats me. Yeah. You know, so there was, so it revealed to me that there was a lot of territory that I still needed to cover. Um, and then I said, you know, and, I, and it was one of those things where we like ran out of time. I was still asking questions like we got to go. We got to give up the room. And I said, I think, I think I'm not revising history. I, I think it was to that group. I said, tell you what, I'll blog about this every Monday for the, until I run out of ideas mm-hmm. for the next hour, you know, until I run out of ideas. I figured I'd do about 12 weeks. It'd probably, it'd probably be about 12 articles. And I did do that. And, um, and those became the basis of the, the first book I published on this subject. Um, but you know, and I was getting questions from, so I was getting these signals. It, it wasn't like, I didn't decide oh, I'm going to write a huge book on this. I was just like, eh, I'll probably write 10 or 12 thousand word articles. And maybe that will satisfy this demand. It didn't, didn't satisfy the demand. It seemed to just fan the flames. So people just wanted more. And, you know, there was still a big question. How am I going to make enough? You know, I had, I had clients paying me six figures. How am I going to get, you know, how am I going to, what's the, what's the income stream look like? not, you know, one of these people is not going to pay me a hundred thousand dollars to do make this happen. And I don't even know that I could. So it was still very, very fledgling, but the signal was very strong. Well, and it's such a great example of how you map, you know, lean startup thinking to the services context rather than the product context. Mm -hmm. And it may be, that was not even a factor in how you approached it or your thinking, but it's again for listeners such a great example of what it looks like when you do that translation of the, the you know you're not cutting over from one server to another, <laughs> you're not mm-hmm. uh, doing an overnight <laughs> transition, you're not moving from one house to another. You are building the second better house while you live in the first house. Yeah, right. Yeah, and so it I, I literally had a graph. It was a it was like a, a monthly revenue graph mm-hmm. that would show the split the so the the money that was coming in from the new business and the money that was coming in from the old business and the old business one was slowly ramping down i could have i could have tweaked it to to make it last longer but the 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 new one from started from zero and it started ramping up and so so like the total if you totaled them they didn't really fluctuate that much as i was going through the transition but the transition was like 18 or months maybe maybe more maybe two years Maybe it was two and a half years, but it was, it was years. It was more than a year where I was going through this transition of ramping one down and ramping the other one up. Let's make me sure we have a little time for your second point that you emailed me. I'll read it again. Mm. 
Okay. So you said there's a big tactical difference between picking a cutting edge expertise, something where, you know, I need to be two weeks ahead of everyone else compared mm -hmm. to an evergreen expertise where I need to have a new angle on something that people have been talking about for a century or more. Yeah. Yeah. Say, say more about that. So the, the mobile biz, especially, because that was, that was a very successful business for me in yeah. terms of income, but also lifestyle. I mean, it was purely advisory, which was, a, which, which was new for me. I wasn't working with my hands. I was only working with my brain. So the, yeah. the experience of it was fantastic. And so I was like, oh, this is great. Um, but when I look, if I look back now, the reason it was so successful had a lot, almost nothing to do with me and everything about what a big wave mobile was. Right. I just caught a giant wave. Yeah. Was, Surfers don't mediocre. take credit for the waves. <laughs> no, no. Right. So now here's the other thing. Since it was a tech wave and it was, you know, it was so fundamentally different from anything that came before it, even though BlackBerry was very popular and there were some other, you know, there were other like WAP websites before that. And, you know, on, on flip phones and candy bar phones, this was fundamentally different. This was not the baby internet as Steve Jobs called it. Yeah. So it was essentially, it might as well have been brand new. There were some consultants in the space before me, but they didn't make the leap. Very, very few of them made the leap. So somebody who was a thought leader in the mobile space before the iPhone came out was, or let's not even say thought leader, but someone who was writing books about the mobile space back then was talking about wireless towers and, and plans and things like that. When I, when I came along, I'm talking about things like the browser, like pretty exclusively the browser. Yeah. Cause by then the, you know, it was 2007. Uh, it was 2009 when I got the book deal and it was 2010 when the book came out, January, 2010, right around there. And the, for me to become one of the top five global experts on, on this thing was not hard. Yeah. The only thing different about me than any other web developer on planet earth in 2007 was I was excited enough about it to really dig in and you're going to love this and write about it. Yeah. So what happened very quickly was since this thing was brand new, I could promise you I was one of the top experts in the world because it just came out. I mean, maybe the people who were on the team that built uh, a safari for ios or at the time it was called iphone os or whatever they knew more for sure but they sure didn't put it in their documentation right and they weren't looking for consulting gigs so of the consultants in the world who cared about this stuff i was right up there so when o'reilly like i ran into a guy from o'reilly and i was like oh, i've got an idea for a book and Actually, I had an idea for a different book. He's like, oh, I'll run it up the flagpole and see what happens. And nobody was interested. He said, do you have any other ideas? And I was like, oh, I got this idea for an iPhone book. And I had a contract. It felt like I had a contract 48 hours later. They were like, <laughs> right. they were like yes, this is going to be huge. Do it. Yeah. So the point is, I knew I was right. Like, they're, like, look, nobody knows more about this than me. Maybe Max Furtman or Brian LaRue, like a couple of people. Mm -hmm. You know, P PPK. It was like, I could list them. There were so few. And it's this, it's so brand new that I don't know. There's this, this certainty that you're right. You know, like, can this I say is it? how offline app cash works. <laughs> can, can I say it in, in the land sure. of the blind, 
you go ahead and finish it. <laughs> precisely, precisely, <laughs> exactly. The one-eyed man is king. So yeah. it's like, yeah. So I just needed to stay like a few weeks ahead right. of anybody else. And and if you do that for a couple of years and then write a book, because you really got to, you know, like, you're like, oh, this is going to be in print. Like, I want this to be right. Yeah. You know, so you really go deep. You double check everything. And you've got tech editors that are double checking. You're double checking. And at that, writing the book makes you an expert. It's not necessarily the other way around. Yeah. So then it's like, okay, wow. So now, and then let's contrast that to, let's just pick value pricing. Mm-hmm. Who, who, who came before you in the, in the great oh. lineage of thinking about pricing uh, professional services or however you want to frame it? Like who, who came before you? Cause I, I think there's an opportunity here to contrast what you just talked about with what you're doing now. Yeah. So specifically using those terms, Alan Weiss is very well known for that. And he, I think his value-based fees book came out in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, Ron Baker from the mm-hmm. accounting space. I think he's around the same time. I mean, based on the design of the book, I would say it was probably in the early eighties. Mm-hmm. There, uh, there are a few others. Um, Poundstone, I think is another, another one I read. Mm-hmm. There are a few. Yeah. Uh, and there's some more contemporary ones like Tim Williams, Blair Ends. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know if David C. B. I don't think David C. Baker talks about it, but uh, Ed Class, all the Varus Age people, but that's that's a little bit newer. That's post Weiss. Yeah. So, um, so, so this is not a land full of blind people, right? <laughs> no, not at all. It, but if you, so here's the thing some of the things that you have to do, absolutely must, must do in order to make value pricing work for you, touch on core sales philosophies that go way back mm. to the 60s. I think you might have been the one that turned me on to the, the Secret of Selling Anything by Harry Brown. And that's from the 60s. Mm. Dale Carnegie's book. I mean, there these these some of the things that you need to do in a sales interview with a prospect that you're going to ultimately value price are like go back as far as you want to go back in terms of bo- sales books. Right. You know, it's like, cause you can, you can value price all day long, but you still got to close the deal. So it's like, how do you close a deal like that when the mm-hmm. price is most certainly the highest one that they're going to get from any provider? Yeah. How do you differentiate yourself? Positioning is critical as well. And that, you know, if you want to, con- you know, consider positioning specifically, I guess that goes back to the recent trout book, which is also in the eighties, Yeah. but it goes back to more general marketing pr- principles, back to Ogilvy and Mad Men and all of that stuff into the sixties. Yeah. So when you're talking, when you're playing in that space, you, you better have you, like, you, think of all the research you'd have to do to not accidentally plagiarize something or like co- flat out copy something, reinvent the wheel and be like, look, I invented a wheel. And everyone's just looking at you like, yeah, know, like back of the line noob. Right. Yeah. That's embarrassing. I mean, we yeah. all do that in our enthusiasm about new ideas mm-hmm. that are new to us. And then we're like, oh crap but this people have been talking about this for 30 years i've done when that. i was in, you're gonna love this when i was in high school i that was when i fell in love with electric guitar and i had a whammy bar on my guitar and it, it was and it's like this metal bar that allows you to depress the bridge and make the strings slacken and, uh-huh. and changes the tone and it comes off so you can put the the guitar in the case and one time i had the i, I had the whammy bar off i was taking it off to put the guitar away and i dropped it and it slid along the strings and I was like, well, that made like a, 
noise. And I and I picked it up and I'm sliding it up and down. I thought I invented slide guitar. <laughs> oh, it was man. like, I was like, check this out. I'm like, you know, sliding the whammy <laughs> bar up and down and like playing, you know, I'm like, dude, that's slide guitar, you nincompoop. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's that exact thing. Right. I'm going to be famous. I invented this new sound. Right. I was but, just an idiot, you know, I, I had no idea. But uh, you're referencing something I think a lot of us can identify with, which is that hunger to, you know, do something new or to bring your audience something new. Mm. And, and you're in, you're not in the land of the blind anymore. And right. so I think you have ideas about, you know, how, what do you do that's different than the mobile consulting space? Right. In, in the mobile consulting space, it was just like keeping up with the latest and greatest tech every time, right. uh, you know, every time you knew exactly what to do. The tactics were obvious. You just had to follow the news. Yeah. And, and then whenever a new software version was released, you tested everything. It was like, but it got, it gets boring. And yeah. and that market was a, uh, when mobile plateaued at the top of the S curve, everybody jumped to like ML and AI and blockchain and all these other n hot new Gartner hype cycle right. technologies. And I was like, wait a minute, what about mobile? Which I'll uh, point so out very few of which are on the scale on the magnitude and scale of change that uh, what Ben Thompson would call continuous computing represents or maybe ubiquitous computing. That's really yeah. what mobile was, was a, was a giant sea change. Dude, mobile, tooth, toothbrushes, pencils, literacy aren't on the scale of mobile. Right. Like yeah. it's the biggest technology wave ever. Right. Just, just to contextualize, like, you know, being, you know, very early to that is different than being very early to chatbots, <laughs> for example. <laughs> right. Something right. that was spoken about in similar terms that I think has not panned out in nearly the same way. Yeah, even voice computing, which is is clearly a non-trivial thing, is nothing. I mean, I, I caught the biggest tech wave that has ever been. Right. So, you know, so bear that in mind. <laughs> yeah, that's important context. Um, anyway, back to what you were saying. Yeah. So when you're in this new space where, like, you know, people have been playing slide guitar for a long time and now you know it, what are you, who needs you? Like what, what's, what value do you add? Right. And which for it, me, so sorry, is so, so much the story that the reticent to share person is going to tell themselves. Yes. They're going to say, who needs to hear from me on this? Like mm -hmm. Alan Weiss already wrote the book. Right. Yeah. I'll tell you who software developers, right? So like, that's the whole point. There's a, there's a concept in, in, um, in software development called localization where, the code renders itself differently in different situations. Time zones is an obvious example, but a website that magically shows up in Spanish if your browser says you're a Spanish-speaking person, or it magically shows up in English if you're in, in uh, if that, those are your settings. So localizing content is a useful thing to do. It's like if you're going to be a stand-up comedian, uh, hopefully people understand English if that's the language you're telling jokes in, yeah. right? You got you to gotta translate it into the language of the audience. And it's hard to think of an audience that is more allergic to the ideas of marketing, sales, pricing, or call it positioning. Um, uh, if you don't, if you don't like, they don't even like, I don't even try, I try not to use the word marketing because they hate it so much. Right. So they are never, never going to read an Alan Weiss book. Right. They are never going to read Ogilvy's book. You know, it's just not going to happen. 
so here's this audience who, who, you know, my favorite are the independent ones who are classic technicians, right? Straight out of Gerber's e-myth, classic technicians who have a job without a boss and don't realize that they're, they need to be a business person. There's a craft to business, not just a craft to software. So for me to make these ideas palatable and approachable and put in a context that makes the medicine go down, Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lot of value in that. Plus I've got what we've talked about earlier is like a bigger picture mission, which is different than any of the previous ones. Like I'm the ditching hourly guy. There's never been, I'm not aware of anybody. I guess, I guess the Verisage people are kind of on the same mission. They're, they're Uh out there trying to rid at least the accounting and legal professions of hourly billing. They, they are actually, they see that as an enemy. They call Mm -hmm. it that they're, they want to kill the timesheet. That's their mission. Kill the okay. timesheet. Yeah. So I guess that that they are fellow travelers on this mission that I'm on. But there's, you know, you go back to the greats and none of them are talking about that. Nobody was trying, nobody saw any problem with hourly billing. They just yeah. say it's it's not good for you. Don't do it. Do something else. But they didn't try and kill it. Yeah. So yeah, I, it's a it's a whole different ballgame when you're in a in an evergreen space. But here's the here's the good news is that when you're in that sort of, you know, two weeks ahead of everybody else space doesn't take long for the fast followers to catch up. And that's where I found myself in 2012, 2013, all of a sudden, all of my expertise was built into WordPress. It was built into SAP. It was built into Basecamp. It was built into like all of these things. Yeah. So all of a sudden it was like, what do we need to pay you for? Everything just works everywhere. And with the evergreen stuff, if you can translate these, core, uh, I'm trying not to say evergreen again, but if you can translate these like eternal concepts into a language that a modern audience can digest, then that's going to be a much longer game. I think, I don't remember if we were recording or not, but you asked me earlier, how long could I walk away from this current business Mm -hmm. and have it for months? Ask me that about my mobile consulting business. Zero, zero months. Yeah. You were on essentially on call. I mean, part of the yeah. value prop was that you would be on call. Yeah. They only called once a month, but twice still. a month. So it was for, you know, highly profitable, but I had to answer. Yeah. And they didn't tell you <laughs> when like it was going to be ahead department. of time. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. So just two different ball games completely. One of the things I love about your story, Jonathan, is that you, you, um, you made these transitions earlier rather than later. Uh, you know, one of the things that has been heartbreaking about my work is, and it's, uh, I mean, because a lot of my client base has been tech people and that is so heavily skewed towards the male contingent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's guys who are getting gray hair who show up and are like, let's, you know, let's talk about how we, I can make a big pivot in my career and find specialize in a way that's going to, um, alleviate the, the pressures I'm feeling. And <laughs> it's not like, oh, it's too late, but it's like, wow, if you'd started five years ago, you'd be in a, a different <laughs> position. That's one yeah. of the things I, I love is that you you articulate what it looks like to start five years before it's not technically too late, but you know, on the later side of the good timing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's wrap up. Um, I'm curious. So Van Halen, David Lee Roth, um, <laughs> 
Who was the guitarist for Queen? I forget, always forget his name. Brian May. Yeah, I always think of Brian May's guitar tone as so amazing. <laughs> what do yeah. you like about? I mean, as you know, when when Jonathan was at his peak fandom of Van Halen, what what did you like about David Lee Roth's guitar playing? Oh, David, he's the singer. So oh, Eddie sorry. Van Halen. Thank you. Right, right, right. See, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Not your heavy metal is not your bag, but I I wanted to be. In, in high school, I wanted to be Eddie Van Halen. I wanted okay. to like, yeah, that, and I was just like, I fell in love with the guitar, the way it looked, the way it felt, the way it sounded. I still love the feel of playing, but I mean, it would be a whole nother episode if we talked about like my hindsight on following the the advice to do what you love and the money will follow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, if you if you use a long enough lens, that worked for me. That was my, that was one, the, maybe the one piece of advice I can remember my dad that stuck with me from my dad, do uh, what you love and the money will follow. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a cliche, uh, but on a long enough time horizon, it's working out great for me right now. Yeah. And going through that phase of, first of all, having all the fun stories, that's fun. Um, but going through the phase of, of trying desperately to drag people to shows trying desperately to get people to buy our stupid cassette tapes and our early cds and and year, years literally years of grinding against what i now see was a complete lack of interest like when after doing that for years when you see interest you notice it and that's what i noticed when i was at that user group meeting in boston and people were like just like just like eyes wide, like just staring at you, like, and what happened next? And what, like these people cared. Like if you looked at people at a, one of my gigs, they would have been like, can you tell the guy in the corner to turn down? I'm trying to watch the game, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. and I just thought that was the way it is. It's always like that. And then you break through. It's like, no, I, I wasn't doing something anyone wanted. I was doing it wrong. So after a decade of beating my head against a, a, a wall of no demand, lack of interest, people basically doing me a favor to come to a show. When somebody, when someone was getting value out of something I was really excited about, it really stood out. I mean, it was like, oh, this is what it's supposed to feel like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Jonathan, that's a great place to leave things. Uh, where can folks go buy a, um, a CD or cassette a, a tape bar. of your, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Where can folks check out your work? Yeah, just go to jonathanstark.com. It's the best place. Um, there's a, a list of popular links right at the top of the homepage. If you can kind of like browse around there. Um, there's a, you know, my daily mailing list is the best way to get in touch with me. You can easily find links to that on the site. And yeah, I, I read all the messages. I get back to people as often as I can, either in groups or uh, individually. But yeah, I'd love to hear from you.